The war waged by the Israeli government against the Palestinian people and the efforts to carry out mass ethnic cleansing of the city of Jerusalem as part of the ongoing historic efforts to evict the Palestinian people from their homelands has led to a historic level of resistance from the people in Jerusalem, from Gaza, from the West Bank, and within Arab communities throughout the area of historic Palestine, including those within the current Israeli borders. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker, and we are happy to be joined today by Abby Martin and Mike Preisner. They produce invaluable video and podcast resources through The Empire Files. Check out their work at TheEmpireFiles.tv and their Patreon at Patreon.com forward slash Empire Files. As Israeli rockets and missiles pound civilian targets inside of Gaza, As resistance forces target Israel with rockets, as this struggle continues to escalate following the Netanyahu government's announcement that it had rejected a ceasefire offer from Hamas and intends, in fact, to widen their assault, we talk with Abby Martin and Mike Preisner, who have decided to make their full-length documentary movie, Gaza Fights for Freedom, to be available to everyone for free. You can find it on the Empire Files YouTube channel. Abby Martin, Mike Preisner, welcome. Thanks so much for having us. Appreciate you having us on, Brian. Thank you for joining. Abby, let's talk first about your movie and your decision this week. Undoubtedly, there was huge expenses with making a full-length documentary as you have But the movie is now free. Talk about the movie. Talk about your decision. Absolutely. In light of just the horrific attacks on occupied Palestine and, of course, the bombardment of Gaza, which is an open-air prison with two million people living there, we felt like we had no choice but to make the documentary available for free because it really does provide such essential context to the situation, you know, this this so-called complicated situation that's been going on for, it's a tale as old as time, really, it's very crystal clear, and it's just very straightforward. And so we felt like this film was an essential tool and guide for people, not only to understand what happens when Palestinians peacefully resist, in the sense of the Great March of Return, which is what the documentary documents, they were met with sniper fire, 500 Palestinians shot in the head, hundreds killed, thousands wounded with exploding bullets for peacefully protesting. But beyond that, we wanted to have this documentary available to push forward the case of Israeli war crimes, because that's really what the documentary does. Of course, it you know it's a stunning, heroic depiction of Palestinian resistance, but really it is a clear-cut unequivocal documentation of of Israeli war crimes. And these are documented with 
violations of the Geneva Conventions of protected categories under the Geneva Conventions, that is the direct targeting of children, disabled people, journalists and medics. A couple of days ago, it was, you know, the world recognized nurses. And I think it's important to keep Razan al-Najjar in our minds. The anniversary of her murder is actually coming up on June 1st. And of course, the story of her murder and the Israeli state trying to manipulate her story and pretend that she was some sort of human shield is also documented in the film. The film is shot by Gazan-based videographers and producers, and they risk their lives every Friday going out there, you know, dodging bullets to get this stunning, beautiful footage that you see in the film. We're very excited to release it. Our colleagues in Gaza are very happy that it is released as well. And we just hope that it's just one more thing that people can use to share with their friends and family and really, again, make the case of just clear-cut Israeli war crimes. And aside from the Geneva Conventions, I mean, we're talking about exploding bullets, unidentified gas that they were using. And there's just so many violations upon violations that I think framing it in the way of international law, it's really just you cannot argue that. And so once people understand that all of this is completely illegal in the international community, I don't really understand how you can argue anything except the liberation of Palestine. Mike, the great march of return, let's just talk about those words and bring it back to what Abby was mentioning about context and narrative, because absent context or absent another narrative other than the dominant narrative, people don't really know what to make out of the battle going on in historic Palestine. I mean, at least people who aren't from Palestine. And I want to make the point or ask you to address this issue about context and narrative. The Palestinians and the Palestinian struggle has always been portrayed as a terrorist operation. Unlike the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, at least by the late 1980s, or earlier movements for social justice, which are considered movements for social justice, the Palestinians have always been caricatured as terrorists, even though The Israeli government, the Israeli state, the Israeli military, the Israeli Air Force has pounded Palestinian and Arab targets relentlessly. It's the Palestinians who are characterized as the terrorists. And this movie about the great march of return, meaning the return of Palestinians to the homes from which they were evicted, this was clearly not, quote, terrorist. I mean, nobody by any stretch of the imagination could call this movement terrorist because it was a peaceful movement. And Abby talked about the huge number of casualties inflicted on the Palestinians by the Israeli defense forces, including people being shot in the head. It's clear that the Israeli government treated peaceful protests as if they were terrorists and thus used military means and extreme violence against them. But again, any resistance, peaceful, armed struggle, you name it, always characterized as terrorist. Anyway, let's talk about the great march of return that this movie is about, what it meant, what it showed, and why the Israelis were so willing to employ massive amounts of violence against a peaceful movement. Right. You know, 
Israel actually used to be a little bit more honest in their term describing the Palestinians because they didn't always use the word terrorist. It was preceded by another term, which was infiltrators. And that was a little more honest. They referred to Palestinians they had to kill and detain as infiltrators, meaning that they were infiltrating Israel to try to return to their homes. And they've had a you know, shoot to kill policy against infiltrators, meaning anyone trying to cross the border from Gaza to their ancestral land ever since the creation of the state of Israel. You know, it's important that context we're mentioning is 75% of people living in Gaza are not from Gaza. They are refugees and the children of refugees from areas that they were ethnically cleansed from, part of those 500 villages that were raised in the Nakba in 1948. And so when you hear about rockets being fired into Israel from Gaza, you know, the kind of interesting context is that refugees are firing rockets into the land that they were expelled from just over the border. Of course, the film is important because it kind of debunks all of the things that are used by the Israeli propaganda machine, of course, echoed by not just U.S. corporate media, but by most of the politicians in Congress and in the White House. And I think The Great March is the perfect example because right now, as of this recording, 17 children have been killed in Gaza by Israeli bombs. And, you know, the Israeli... In, in just the last few days. That's correct. And the Israeli propaganda machine says, well, these are unavoidable casualties. You know, it's the fault of Hamas militants. You know, we would never intentionally kill children. But the Great March of Return proves the exact opposite. Through the Great March in 2018 and some of 2019, 35 children were killed, but not killed by shrapnel from bombs in the middle of a war or anything like that. There were children who were directly targeted by Israeli snipers. And, you know, sniper rifles have an effective range of, you know, something like 2,000 meters. But these children were shot from a distance of 100 meters away, 200 meters away, children as young as 11 years old, but many who were 12, 13, 14, directly targeted by Israeli snipers. And not for, you know, breaching the fence or posing an imminent danger to troops or escaping from Gaza into Israel. I mean, these were children who were just standing, you know, 100, 200 meters from the fence just at the demonstration and were directly targeted by snipers and shot directly in the head and killed. There's no explaining away something like that. And so when you focus in on the Great March as a kind of example of what happens when Palestinians do peacefully resist, that is your answer. Israel tried to pretend that it was targeting people who were breaching the fence or something like that. But this was part of the terror of it all. It wasn't just you would not just get shot if you approach the fence and touch the fence, but it could be anybody who was at the demonstration. It could be an elderly woman. It could be a man sitting in a wheelchair. It could be a medic providing medical attention. No matter who you were, Israel was sending a message. If you showed up to this peaceful demonstration that you could be killed just for standing around hundreds of meters from the border fence. And I think it's just an emblematic example of Israeli policy. And I think it gives people all the tools that they need to debunk all the types of things that they hear from, you know, everyone is Hamas and to the real colonial history of how people ended up there and all of that. Abby, we're talking about your movie, Gaza Fights for Freedom, which you're making it available for free to everyone. I was looking at some of the other videos that you and Mike have produced at the Empire Files earlier. One is called How Palestine Became Colonized. I want to play a clip from that, but before I do, one of the points that you make is that 
and I think it's more towards the end of the video, is that the Palestinian people's consciousness as a people is so associated with enduring resistance that the consciousness, the endurance of this consciousness has allowed the people to exist in a way. Because part of the goal of the Israeli settler project, and you can see it in 1948 and 1956, of course, in the 1967 war, the 1973 war, they haven't left. The idea of resilience and steadfastness, so much a part of what it even means at this stage to be Palestinian. And that's why they say existence is resistance, because that is the intent of this apartheid settler colonial state, is to wipe not only the remaining Palestinian land and people off the map, but the erasure of the culture in general. I mean, that's why they say Palestine as an entity doesn't exist, which encompasses everything that that contains, the literature, the music, the, you know, everything that that you can say is historic Palestine is not recognizable to the people who are trying to brutally colonize it. And I think that's a really profound thing that, you know, Palestinians just for simply staying on their land and refusing to capitulate is such a powerful symbol and, you know, going back to the Great March, the lead organizer of the Great March, Ahmed Abu Artema, an incredible poet and activist who was inspired because he just saw birds flying freely between Gaza and his ancestral lands. And he just said, this defies what it means to be a human, you know, basic human mobility. That's the most essential right that we have is the freedom of movement. And he said, this is just so contradictory to human nature and the laws of, you know, nature. And what his intent was, and this is what he posed initially, was to set up tents in an Occupy style encampment right outside this artificial border fence to draw attention to their struggle as refugees. You know, 70 years later, he said, you know, we have the right to return under this UN resolution 164. And he said, setting up these tents to show people that, hey, we're still refugees and try to build pressure from the international community. But even Israel couldn't have that symbolic victory. And so, of course, you know, devastatingly, we saw what happened next. But um, it is really touching when you hear, you know, how this movement started and who sparked it and what the intent really behind it was. And it just makes it so much more tragic, the overwhelming, violent, brutal massacre in response. Abby, just to stay with us for a moment, let's just review again the statistics. How many people were shot? How many were killed? You mentioned it, but I wanted to sink in for the audience. Over 200 people killed, tens of thousands wounded, either directly targeted with exploding bullets. Keep in mind that they were using internationally banned explosive arsenal here. Um, shrapnel, of course, wounded thousands more. 500 Palestinians directly shot in the head. Like Mike said, people are looking through sniper scopes with someone's head in the viewfinder and pulling the trigger 
pulling the trigger. Zero Israeli casualties throughout this entire thing. You know, keep in mind that, of course, the media always paints it in this passive voice that Palestinians just died. You know, they just up and died. Well, how did they die? They were murdered. And it always paints it as just this clash between two peoples. But really, especially during the Great March of Return, I'll never forget how the corporate media was depicting it. And it was just so beyond the pale that they could actually paint a massacre, like on that bloody day in May of 2018, when 63 people were mowed down with sniper fire in one day. And these are Israeli soldiers perched behind sand dunes. As Mike said, I mean, people were hundreds of meters away, people smoking cigarettes, people passing out sandwiches. We document some of these examples in the movie. It's all taken from this UN report that really cited all of the casualties and statistics. And it is just absolutely shocking when you see what the people were doing when they were killed, what these children were actually doing when they were killed. Three journalists were purposefully targeted, shot, and you know, also the medics, like Mike said, when they were going to help people, they were targeted. And one of the medics in the film says they target the medics so then they can set fear in the heart of everyone because then everyone will say, well, if they're targeting the medics, who will help me if I get shot? We won't be able to get aid. So, of course, that will make them not want to go anywhere near these protests again. But one thing that's really important is that they endured. They endured for weeks, months, almost a year. People were going out every single Friday in defiance of what was happening and just standing with bared chests, holding flags, despite the brutal response. It's just a really, really unfathomable heroism. Yeah. And what you were saying, Brian, earlier about the kind of spirit of identity and knowing that they're going to, in whatever way they can, exist as a form of defiance. You know, one of the main things you could get shot for at the Great March of Return was throwing a rock with a slingshot towards the fence. Now, these rocks, you know, would never hit an Israeli soldier. It wouldn't even hit the sandbags Israeli soldiers were hiding behind. It was a purely symbolic act to hurl a rock at the actual border fence, just like an F you to the fence. But every single person who stood up and threw a rock did so knowing that they could be shot in the head as they were throwing the rock. But that did not deter thousands of Palestinian youth, women, men, children, elderly people from stepping up to the fence and throwing a rock at the fence. And I think that that symbolic act alone, knowing the consequences, it just speaks to the spirit and resilience of the Palestinian people who refuse to back down. And I think there's a tie-in to what's happening today in Jerusalem and Sheikh Jarrah, elsewhere within so-called Israeli borders, is that you know, people would think about this. Why would you shoot children? Why would you shoot people in wheelchairs? Like, what is the point of the Israeli brutality against the people of Gaza? And the reason is because Gaza was once occupied just like the West Bank. They were under brutal Israeli military occupation. Extremist settlers were all over Gaza who were continuing the exact same types of home thefts that we're seeing in Sheikh Jarrah and in the West Bank. The same types of, you know, extremist lynch mobs marching to the streets like you're seeing in places like Haifa and Lod and other cities within Israel. But the resistance forces in Gaza forced out the Israeli military in 2005. And all of the settlers had to leave. All of the Israeli military had to leave. And so ever since that time in 2005, I mean, that was a big defeat for Israel and the settler movement and the Israeli military. And so ever since then, they have been inflicting 
punishment on the people of Gaza for daring to liberate their territory from occupation and to stop the process of colonization. And that has defined the policy until this day. That's why they're shooting people to protest, because Gaza is now a place for punishment. And one further thing that illustrates that is it's actually Israeli policy to deport people to Gaza who have never even been to Gaza before. But as a form of punishment, they will deport people to Gaza so they have to live in that open-air prison, which even by Israeli policy, to them, it is a prison that they have created. It's not just a hyperbolic term. Abby, the Israelis have what's called the law of return, which means that any Jewish person anywhere in the world has the right to return, meaning people who have never ever lived in Israel have the right to apply to come and become citizens, certainly to come as immigrants. Section one of the law of return declares every Jew has the right to come to this country as an immigrant. Now, my daughter's mother is Jewish. That means technically, according to Israel, then my daughter would be Jewish and my daughter would have the right to come to Jerusalem, even though she's never stepped foot in the country, even though she was born in Manhattan. And yet the Palestinian people who have lived in these towns, in these villages, in these cities, in these neighborhoods for thousands of years, since the beginning of human life in this area, they don't have the right of return. So the issue of the march, the great march of return, it's again, tied up with the idea of endurance, steadfastness, resilience, but the justice of it is so obvious. And yet again, the narrative presented in the West is that the people who are fighting to return, the fighting to go back to homes from which they were physically and violently evicted, that's an act of terror. I mean, it's quite amazing. And I don't think any other country in the world would be able to get away with this narrative and get away with it in such an unchallenged way. No, I mean, it's totally absurd every way you look at it. You know, I mean, the fact that the Holocaust has continued to be exploited to punish essentially children in Gaza over and over again, generation after generation, and this open call for Jews all over the world to be able to come and participate in the continued ethnic cleansing and colonization of an indigenous people is just absolutely incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible, and that's why you see so many Jewish organizations now stepping up to the plate and saying, we completely denounce this. I mean, Judaism is not Zionism. Zionism is the notion of an exclusively Jewish state that maintains an artificial majority of a Jewish population. And when you look at something like East Jerusalem, for example, they have something in place called a demographic law where they need to maintain 70% Jews versus 30% Arabs. What does that actually mean? Take a step back and actually wrap your mind around the notion that in order to maintain an artificial majority of a certain type of people, you need to continue to expel violently <laughs> the other you know, percentage of people who might go above that 30%. And that's just truly astounding. I mean, the fact that there's 
billions of dollars put into these birthright tours and propaganda effort to convince Jews all over the world that they have a home based on ancient biblical texts that somehow overrides actual existing Palestinians <laughs> with roots in the land that we can see right now. And I think that, you know, these viral videos that are coming out of Sheikh Jarrah and elsewhere of the ethnic cleansing that's taking place right before our eyes really just speaks for themselves. I mean, this man who's clearly from New York City or somewhere in New York, and he's literally just taking over a Palestinian woman's home. And she says, why are you doing this? And he says, what? If, if I don't do it, someone else will. It's not me. You know, essentially saying, I am protected. I am shrouded with impunity by the state. And in fact, he is. And in fact, he is because there's no condemnation from Israeli authorities about what's going on, because that is what Israel is at its core, as a violent settler colonial state that is ongoing for 73 years committing ethnic cleansing. It would be like as if this was still happening. Yes, expelling the native population here. If this were happening still today, armed extremists going and evicting native indigenous people from their homes to kind of just illustrate how outrageous this is and just the hypocrisy, the sheer hypocrisy from corporate media. Imagine a Trump mob, an armed extremist mob of Trump supporters in an immigrant neighborhood in Texas, violently throwing out immigrants from their homes. How would the media cover that? How would the media cover that? How would the media cover armed Muslims taking over an ancient synagogue and burning it down and chanting death to Jews and burn their memory because that's what's happening today. And once you flip the script, it really does become cartoonish of just how complacent and not only complacent, complicit the corporate media is and in the entire U.S. political establishment, the fact that these people have the audacity to start every statement with we condemn rocket attacks. Well, what about Palestinians' right to self-defense? That's never talked about. How could they sit idly by and let this happen? No one would. I was talking to a young man, 16-year-old, who was looking at the news the other day, last night actually, and he was looking at this tipped over 14-story apartment building. And he said, what happened? And I said, well, the Israelis decided to deliberately bomb this building. They bombed two tall sort of high-rise places. One had apartments and offices. The other had apartments. And he said, they can just go and destroy a 14 or 12-story building? Isn't that like against the rules? I mean, aren't you supposed to target military? In a war, don't the militaries fight other militaries? And I was, I said to him, you know, the Israelis said, oh, we gave warning. They text messaged people that they had like 10 or 15 minutes to leave before they destroyed the building. And the building is completely tipped over. And Mike, the journalist reporting on it, they couldn't mention that attack without also saying that, you know, three Israelis were killed somewhere else during a rocket barrage that was fired from Gaza. Again, these are war crimes. There's no question that the deliberate targeting, and it was deliberate because they gave, quote, warning so people could run out of their homes before their homes were destroyed. That's a violation of the Geneva Convention. That's a violation of international law. All of these laws, the crimes against humanity, war crimes, crimes against peace, these are derivative laws that come from the Nuremberg trials of the Nazis who committed the Holocaust against Jewish people and others. 
Anyway, let's just talk about the direct targeting of civilians, again, for the same purpose. Right. You know, a lot of the civilian casualties, they say that they're collateral damage because they were near Hamas military positions. But Israel regards literally every inch of Gaza as a possible Hamas military position. Not only that, but what Israel carries out targeted assassinations with these, you know, massive missile strikes. A lot of times it's of the home of a Hamas official, you know, Hamas being the elected government in Gaza. So they are very much political assassinations, but they'll, they'll just drop a bomb on his home, you know, with his family inside. And so that's not exactly uh, a Hamas militant fighting an engagement and then his children are nearby. It's people who are at home and the entire family is killed. But, you know, of course, Israel's excuse always is that these are human shields, that Hamas is conducting military operations near civilian areas. Now, Gaza, of course, is a very tiny place that has the most densely populated city on the planet. And so, you know, it would actually be impossible for any military to operate there without being somewhat near civilian population. But Israel knows what it's bombing, just like it bombed that residential tower. It knew that it was a residential tower. It knew that there was journalist offices there and so forth. But I just want to to flip that over because Israel also has military bases that are right in the middle of residential areas. In fact, the biggest military base in Israel is completely surrounded by apartment complexes and houses and things like that. And so when Hamas shoots missiles at military targets in Israel, which it very much does. In fact, it's been somewhat successful in recent days in doing that. It hit an Israeli ammo depot. It hit an Israeli military position. And so it, of course, is aiming at Israeli military targets. But when those rockets land outside their target and hit Israeli houses or apartment buildings, no one says Israel is using human shields by putting its military bases in a residential area. You know, you're mentioning the way that it was covered, the toppling of these residential towers, which, of course, Israel actually has promised to do more of after that was done. They said that they are going to keep toppling towers. You know, they always have to couch it in something else. And, oh, it's this necessary self-defense. But I think anyone can see through that. And the only people that don't are, you know, deliberately trying to twist the reality. And just one more point. Every time that one of these towers or apartment buildings are demolished, people have to keep in mind that these are dozens of people, hundreds perhaps, that are homeless. You know, they can't rebuild in Gaza because every single thing that comes in and out is controlled by the Israeli military. And so that's why Gaza is still in the state of rubble back from the 2014 bombardment that killed 2,200 Palestinians, 500 children. So that is the state where you cannot bring in actually construction materials to rebuild some of this architecture. And one more point about the Al Sharok Journalist Tower. This was another tower that was leveled, completely leveled, housed international media agencies, Brian. And, you know, I just think back to 2012 during Operation, quote unquote, Pillar of Defense, also called Operation Pillar of Cloud. Very bizarre, surreal names to, you know, justify what's going on. But when I was working at Russia Today, they shelled one of the floors in this journalist tower and blew off the leg of an RT cameraman. At that time, that week, I had been covering daily all of the war crimes that Israel was committing in a pretty, you know, obvious way. I, I was taking a very obvious side in the coverage. So once they did this, my boss actually asked the Israeli government for a statement of why they actually 
bombed the journalist tower knowing that this housed international media agencies. Avita Lobovich, the IDF spokesperson at the time, said, quote, we obviously knew there were journalists in the building. RT has taken a side in the coverage. I mean, wrapping your mind around that explicit admission of a war crime and moreover, almost a threat. It, you know, if you don't sympathize or paint Israel as somehow the victim in all this, we will target you and potentially kill you because they don't care if you're a journalist, a medic, a civilian, a child. Everything in Gaza is considered a Hamas target because Hamas simply rules the strip. It would be as absurd as just saying we have the right to bomb anywhere in America because you guys elected Trump. It's just beyond the pale. Yeah, I want to also help everyone understand how this bias and support for Israel from the U.S., it's not accidental, and it can't be attributed, as it sometimes is, simply to the power of the so-called Israeli lobby, even though that is a very powerful lobby here in the United States. From the beginning, Israel and the Zionist movement, again, as you said, Abby, which tries to conflate Zionism with Judaism or with the Jewish people, which you know, I think insidiously took the symbol of the Star of David as the national flag of this colonial settler regime and government, so as to conflate Judaism and Jewish people with the state of Israel and its policies. And and something that Jewish Americans in larger and larger numbers are completely rejecting today, especially younger folks. But I think that it's important for everyone to understand that the bias for Israel is because Israel and the Zionist movement has, from its beginning, been an extension of Western colonialism into this part of the world. Western colonialism dominated China, it dominated India, Indonesia, all of Africa, with the exception of Ethiopia, Latin America, and it also dominated the Middle East. The Balfour Declaration by British colonialism that gave Palestine or part of it to the Zionist movement for a homeland for Jewish people, that was the British colonial project. They didn't do it because they suddenly cared about Jewish people. They were involved at the time of World War I or the end of World War I or as it began to end with the French colonialists, with the Tsarist Russia in terms of how to redivide the predominantly Arab-speaking lands of the former Ottoman Empire as the Ottoman Empire was being defeated in World War I so that they could colonize it themselves. The Empire Files, and you both of you made this Gaza Fights for Freedom, but you have many other important videos on the Middle East, on Palestine. One that I watched recently is how Palestine became colonized, and that's why I'm mentioning it, because it explains so clearly in about less than 30 minutes how the Israeli project is a colonial project. I want to play an audio clip. It's from the beginning of this video and then get both of you to comment briefly about it. Let's listen. For two weeks, the Empire Files team traveled the West Bank and Palestine. What we saw was one of the biggest human rights disasters on the planet, a brutal and growing military occupation that thrives off U.S. sponsorship soon to be strengthened even more by another 38 billion in US tax dollars, the largest military aid deal in history. This stark reality is never taught to us in school. And whenever we do hear about Palestine in the media, it might as well be directly from the Pentagon. It's a place the majority of Americans only get a first-hand look at on so-called birthright tours. 
which sell Israel as a fun, peace-loving country, living under threat of genocide from Muslims. The side we saw was very, very different. But the truth is actually much clearer. And before we show you what we saw on the ground, we must go back to understand the real history of how things got to where they are today. Many people have seen this famous map, showing the ever-shrinking borders of Palestine. But likely far less people could explain why the borders have changed so dramatically. Each phase and the stories behind them are essential pieces to a puzzle that we're told is just too complicated. First, how did these original borders of Palestine form from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea? The countries of the modern Middle East were once the same swath of territory owned by the Ottoman Empire. Of the nearly 500,000 people living in Ottoman Palestine, 75% were Muslim, 20% Christian, and 5% Jewish. Nearly 100% were Arab. Its cities, especially Jerusalem, were buzzing hives of Arab art and culture, a destination for intellectuals across the Middle East. Before Palestine had borders, it was a recognizable nation, its cultural identities distinct, with deep roots in the land. But plans for that land were being made elsewhere in the world. In the late 1800s, it was being eyed to be colonized. In the United States, Europe, and Russia, anti-Semitism was a dangerous and growing force. Mob killings of Jewish people were a regular occurrence. In this climate of terror began what is known as Zionism, or the belief in an exclusively Jewish state to be established somewhere in the world. From its founding through the first half of the 20th century, the Zionists remained an extremely small minority among Jewish people. The ideology was rejected by both religious and secular Jewish people, who agreed that anti-Semitism was a great danger, but that they should organize to defeat it in their home countries, rather than by mass exodus to another people's land. Many argue that exporting entire Jewish populations from Europe was in essence acquiescing to the demands of anti-Semites. Abby and Mike, this is such an important part of the story because, again, it's presented in the Western media that there's a land dispute between two people. One people is the Palestinians, who are predominantly Muslim, also Christian, and the other people are Jewish people who have been given the land or assert their right to the land based on biblical scripture. But essentially, it's an ongoing, age-old struggle between people. But in fact, the people... Muslim, Christian, Jews, and others in historic Palestine actually lived in peace for a long time until this colonial project began. Let's just, again, fill this out a little bit, because without this context, people will misunderstand what's going on. It would be as if the struggle in Ireland, another colony of Britain, was a struggle between Catholics and Protestants. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's so much history there, which is all very important. As it pertains to Gaza specifically, we talk about a great degree of peaceful coexistence and neighborly hospitality by the Arab population when Jewish settlers started coming there to the point where, you know, in Sterot, which is a city bordering Gaza, which is home to the Sterot cinema where Israelis set up couches and eat popcorn while they watch Gaza be bombed right over the border. That was a Palestinian town called Hajj. And, you know, Palestinians there actually protected Jewish people in that town from British occupation forces, you know, before 1948. 
when British occupation forces were, you know, trying to stop armed Jewish settler groups, you know, they were protected and helped by the Arab population. And then, you know, six months after that, those same armed Jewish settler groups, you know, expelled that same population that aided them and helped them. And so there was, you know, of course, many, many years and a long period of peace there. And this idea that Palestinians just do not want Jews living anywhere near them. And that, you know, if there's not this intense military force and all this Israeli security, that they'll all just be lynched or something. That was not our experience. You know, when we were in Palestine and we were in villages that were actively being taken over by Israeli settlers. And this is an ongoing project. I mean, you touched on it the very beginning of it in that clip. But when you actually see it, when you see that nearly every Palestinian village within so-called Palestinian territory, right, where the Palestinian state supposedly is, you know, almost everywhere you'll have an Israeli trailer or house or some kind of outpost on the highest hill in a Palestinian village. And then that begins the process of regularly coming down, attacking Palestinian homes, trying to drive out the people. And then eventually the military will come and serve a demolition order to a family or a shopkeeper, and they'll have to leave. The home will be bulldozed and that will make way for the settlement. And so it's ongoing everywhere. I mean, even in Ramallah, which is like the one place you can really breathe in the West Bank, you know, we were sitting on the rooftop of a friend's apartment building and you could just see, you know, maybe half a mile or a mile away, the lights from the settlement that was growing closer and closer to them month by month. But when we spoke to Palestinians there, even in these villages that were actively being ethnically cleansed by these settlers, you know, all the time we heard Palestinians say, you know, I don't care if you move here, just why do you have to move on top of my house? And he's like, there's plenty of land here. Why don't you just go build over there and we can be neighbors. But why do you have to build your home on the hilltop overlooking my house and then throw rocks at my house every day and try to kick us out of the house? And so we experienced a great degree of willingness of Palestinians, even considering the historical circumstances of willingness to to coexist even. But the demand is for equality. The demand is for equal rights. And that's what the struggle is over, um, is to be treated equally. Now, when we went into Israel to Tel Aviv, to West Jerusalem, that was absolutely not the type of language. We heard the exact opposite language. We heard the type of language that Palestinians are depicting as talking about Jewish people. Basically, every Israeli we spoke to, and we spoke to a lot of them, was very open about hating all Palestinians. I mean, they won't use the word Palestinian. They say Arab because they will not even acknowledge that Palestinians are a people or a national identity. But all of them were very clear in saying that all of them just need to get out or we should kill them all. And I think when people are shocked now seeing the videos of, you know, these lynch mobs rolling through Arab neighborhoods, and this is in Israel. I mean, this is we're told part of the Israeli propaganda is, oh, the the West Bank and Gaza, that's different. But within Israel, Arabs and Jews live together peacefully and have equal rights. And there's this equality. It's This is proof that it's not apartheid and all of that stuff. But the fascist marches and mobs that we're seeing, which dragged a person out of their car and lynched them, is smashing shop windows, is breaking into people's homes and pulling them out. That's not in East Jerusalem. That's not in the West Bank. That's within Israel. And so when those videos videos came out and people were kind of shocked at, oh my God, there's these, these are normal Israelis marching on Arab neighborhoods within Israel. We very much expected that because when we went into those areas, I mean, the racism was so palpable. It was actually a really sickening experience how openly racist and genocidal people we talked to were. Abby, let me just ask one final question or 
it's more of a point or a comment than a question, but I'll put it in the form of a question, which is, what's the solution? And it seems to me that the Israeli government has absolutely ruled out the idea that there is going to be a so-called two-state solution, that the Palestinians will have a state and that you know East Jerusalem might be its capital. That's gone. So what we have instead is when you think of Gaza and the West Bank and Jerusalem and so-called you know, Israel proper, the population is about half Jewish and half Arab, and the Arabs are Muslims and Christians. And if there's going to be one state, really, if there's no two states, the one state is either an apartheid state or a state where there's not supremacy. There's not Jewish supremacy over non-Jews. In other words, like in South Africa, when finally apartheid ended, the white minority rule also ended, at least in the form of politics, perhaps not in the economic structure of society. But it's really now a choice, if there's no two states, is do you support apartheid or do you support a state where Muslim, Christian, and Jew are equal. I mean, it's really that simple, isn't it? It really is. And just to drive that point home, I think it is important because, you know, the political establishment here in the U.S. as well as the media continue to pretend that there is some sort of feasibility for a two-state solution. And really, this has been dead for decades. I used to not really understand this. I used to have hope for a two-state solution until I went to the West Bank myself. And I saw how this tiny bit of land left for this so-called future Palestinian state was completely obliterated, totally atomized by legal settlements, which are just increasing exponentially. You know, that famous map of the deteriorating Palestinian state are different areas governed under Israeli military control, littered with dehumanizing checkpoints and illegal settlements that are encroaching on native villages. And once you can understand that, you understand that there is only one solution, only one solution. And, you know, Israeli government officials haven't even acknowledged the two-state solution for quite some time. I mean, you have Netanyahu constantly, openly saying that they're planning to annex the entire West Bank. They don't even pretend anymore. So it is just perplexing that the U.S. continues to keep this facade up. But yes, one state solution is the only way forward. And, you know, there was recently a poll done of Americans, and I forget what the polling company was, but once you explain this to people, because this is what the poll revealed, is once you explain, do you want people to have democratic rights? And everyone's going to say, yeah, right? I mean, America's founded on this notion of freedom and democracy, and we're pounded with that all the time. In fact, our government uses that as the pretense to continue to invade and overthrow other countries that are so-called authoritarian. So once you explain the situation in 48 and what's happening in occupied Palestine, everyone will just say, yeah, of course, we want people to have rights and actual democracy, right? One person, one vote. And if you explain that there are currently 5 million Palestinians, 3 million or so in the West Bank, 2 million in Gaza that are forbidden to have basic fundamental human rights that you know pertain to like our so-called democratic values, I think people would just be like, yeah, of course. And that's exactly what this poll revealed is that the vast majority of people said, yeah, there should be one state with equal rights for all. And, you know, of course, the Israeli lobby and government and politicians like to pretend that the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, as well as Palestinian solidarity movement, 
writ large are saying to abolish, you know, the state of Israel, that they want to expel all the Jews and they don't believe that Israel has the right to exist. And, you know, of course, Israel in its current form doesn't have the right to exist. This exclusively Jewish supremacist state that is committing brutal atrocities and ongoing ethnic cleansing, expelling an indigenous population. I mean, these are war crimes. We've already discussed that. So, it is so dishonest and so disingenuous to not paint this as what it is because no one's saying expel the Jews. No one's saying people who are there don't have the right to exist. Everyone in the movement and what BDS explicitly calls for is the fall of apartheid. This is even what, you know, this notorious kind of centrist organization, Human Rights Watch, has finally come out and said. The ICC has finally said they're ready to investigate Israel, and of course, they're running scared. The time has finally come where you cannot deny the reality anymore, that Israel is an apartheid state subjugating millions of people. It does not have the right to exist in its current form, and we need to end apartheid and have one state with equal rights for all. And that is why we are adherents to the BDS movement. We encourage all American citizens, because of course, all of this is being subsidized by our tax dollars here to the tune of $10 million every single day. We encourage American citizens, you know, we're children of the empire, to go out link these struggles together, whether it be police brutality in the U.S., police are trained by Israeli military forces, whether it be immigrant children at the border caged by Israeli military technology, all of these things need to be linked together. And the solidarity movement really needs to come together and gather strength into a broader anti-imperialist movement against our government to pressure our government to end the subsidization of horrific atrocities and apartheid. And the BDS movement is mounting around the world the Israeli government is running scared because they know that BDS is what made apartheid fall in South Africa. They know that the BDS movement is what made Jim Crow fall here, the racist, horrific policies within this country. And that is why they have actually gone out of their way to criminalize peaceful protest and activism. 30 states or so in the U.S. have already passed anti-boycott laws that forbid people to boycott the state of Israel. I mean, it basically says you cannot work in some of these states, in 30 or so states, if you boycott the state of Israel. I am actually engaged in litigation against the state of Georgia because I find it abhorrent that we are forced to forfeit our constitutionally protected First Amendment right in order to work in these states. And I think that participating in the BDS movement, following the lead of Palestinians, participating in solidarity actions, and doing everything that we can to spread awareness because it really is a shift of consciousness. Once people see the truth, they can't unsee it. And the burden is now on us. What can we do about it? Because it's not as the way the media is depicting. And so it's all of these things put together. That's our job. That's our job. But it really shows you BDS is the only thing that can work because Israeli society is so far gone. They are so right wing and increasingly fascistic. And we see this reflected in poll after poll. There is no hope from within Israeli society. And that is why the call to mount this pressure from the international community is really the only way forward. And I have a lot of hope that the breaking point is very, very near and that we are going to see the liberation of Palestine in the near future. We were joined by Abby Martin and Mike Preisner. They produce invaluable video and podcast resources at The Empire Files. Check out their work at TheEmpireFiles.tv and go to their Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash 
The Empire Files, Abby Martin and Mike Preisner have decided to make their full-length documentary movie, Gaza Fights for Freedom, available to everyone for free. You can find it at the Empire Files YouTube channel. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. <laughs>